was leading worship today. The microphone was way up here. You'll want to get out your message outline and have that out so you can follow along. We'll be in Jeremiah 36 today. And again, it is a uh, long chapter, so we're going to go through it as we go. And uh, it's an interesting chapter. It has a unique episode in it, so we'll see what that's like. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need to know that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. We thank you that the book of Jeremiah is a prophetic book and builds our faith and gives us hope because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Thank you for preserving it for us. And since we have it, and since it's powerful in and of itself, then help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The, uh, how many of you know what a dystopian novel is? You know, most of you, good. For the uninitiated, a dystopian novel is a work of speculative fiction. I kind of thought all fiction was speculative, but it's actually a genre of literature. It's usually set in the future that explores social and political structures. It's often combined with apocalyptic literature, which means it usually takes place either right before or right after some cataclysmic disaster like a nuclear war. Anyway, one of the most famous dystopian novels ever written is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, first published in 1953. Didn't realize it was that old. Had to look it up. The novel takes place in an unspecified city in the Midwest in the year 1999. Although it's written as if it's set into a far distant future and later versions put it in the 24th century. Books been made into several movies and plays. Most recently an HBO special in 2018 where they changed the ending. Thus destroying, in my opinion, the whole meaning of the book. The novel's been the subject of all sorts of interpretations focusing on the historical role of book burning in suppressing dissenting ideas for change. In a 1956 radio interview, uh, Ray Bradbury said that he wrote Fahrenheit 451 because of his concerns at the time. It was during the McCarthy era. And you can look that up if you don't know what that means. And he was concerned about the threat of book burning in the United States. In later years, he described the book as a commentary on how mass media reduces interest in reading literature. Who knows what he would have thought about the effect of today's social media on the intellect and literature. 
Fahrenheit 451 presents a future American society where books are outlawed and any found are burned. And the novel's tagline explains the title, Fahrenheit 451, the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. And he got that because he actually asked uh, about the temperature at which paper would spontaneously combust. Not that it was lit on fire, it would just burst into flames. And he'd been told that 451 degrees Fahrenheit was the auto-ignition temperature of paper. And since then, there's been various studies because scientists have nothing else to do. And they've shown that's actually correct, although it varies a little, depends on what type of paper you have. But Ray Bradbury thought Fahrenheit 451 would make a great book title, and he was right. In the book, the lead character, Guy Montag, is a fireman who becomes disillusioned with his role in burning books and destroying knowledge, eventually quitting his job and committing himself to the preservation of literary and cultural writings. So there's some spoilers in here, but this book's like 66 years old, so... In this world, firemen start fires rather than put them out. And the people do not read books, enjoy nature, spend time by themselves, think independently, or have meaningful conversations. Instead, they drive very fast, watch excessive amounts of television on wall-sized TVs, and listen to the radio on seashell radio sets attached to their ears. Doesn't sound so futuristic now, does it? And at first, Montag takes pleasure in his profession as a fireman, burning illegally owned books and the homes of their owners. However, he soon begins to question the value of his profession and, in turn, the value and meaning of his life. Specifically, he wonders why books are perceived to be so dangerous and why some people are so loyal to them. What power lies in books? And throughout the novel, he struggles with his existence, eventually fleeing his oppressive, censored society and joining an underground network of renegade intellectuals known as the book people. That's awesome. It's composed of former writers and ministers and academics who actually live in this hobo camp by the riverbank. And they're part of a nationwide network of book lovers who've memorized great works of literature and philosophy. And they hope to help when it comes time to rebuild the civilization in the aftermath of the war that's coming. And so he joins this group. He escapes and floats down the river and finds these people and joins this group. And as they accept him, he gets assigned his book to memorize to preserve for future generations. And he gets the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a whole lot more to it, but I'm going to stop there. Fahrenheit 451 is a powerful story of preserving intellectual capital through the written word. Of course, throughout human history, there's no greater story of lives being changed by the written word than the story of the Bible. And not only how it survived, but the impact it has had on so many people over so many centuries. But 
like Guy Montag, many of its books have been memorized because the history of the church is filled with accounts of Bibles getting burned or being outlawed or being taken away. And I don't know when exactly opponents of God's word and thus opponents of God himself first started burning Bibles, but one of the earliest recorded episodes of Scripture being burned is in our text for today. This is a great chapter on the value of God's word. So let's open our unburned Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 36. And we're going to start with writing the word. First seven verses, writing the word. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So first, the word's written by the Spirit. It originated in the mind of the Holy Spirit and then passed through the prophet's pen before appearing on the pages of the Bible. And in Jeremiah 36, we read how the word of God came to Jeremiah and then put it down into writing every word of it. And this transcription took place approximately 605 B.C. It includes all the prophecies that Jeremiah uh, received in his first 20 years. It says from the days of Josiah until now. That makes up all the content of Jeremiah 1 through 25 and 46 through 51. So it's 30 chapters of Jeremiah is what's going into this scroll. And the words Jeremiah wrote down are not his words, they're God's. And although the book reflects his personality, his experiences, its ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. And that's why when the writer of Hebrews quotes the book of Jeremiah in Hebrews 10, he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He doesn't say Jeremiah says. He says the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. And, of course, the Apostle Peter wrote about this, uh, biblical prophecy in general, but it specifically applies to Jeremiah, 2 Peter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the word of God is a word from God, which is why it can never lose its saving power. Never forget, Scripture is the very word of God. And God has written this powerful word for the purpose of our salvation from sin. Verse 3, these things are written, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now, you have seen, if you've been here through the first 35 chapters, the book of Jeremiah contains terrible prophecies of divine judgment. But God wants to do more than convict us of sin. He wants to convert us to faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Jeremiah's hope as well. All of God's warnings have the gracious purpose of turning us away from our sin. The great Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said, why else should he pour out threats rather than take immediate action unless it is to bring us to our senses and to his feet? So even the preaching of final judgment, eternal punishment, is founded on the grace of God. The Word of God frankly tells us that we deserve to be damned in order to make us run to Christ and be saved. And in order for Scripture to fulfill that saving purpose in our life, it first had to be written down. So Jeremiah summons his scribe, Baruch, who, verse 4, wrote on a scroll of the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So the book of Jeremiah is revealed by the Holy Spirit. It's remembered by the prophet Jeremiah, and then it's written down by Baruch. In addition to serving as a scribe, he's also something of his publicist. So he says, verse 5, uh, Jeremiah says, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you go, and uh, you read the words of the Lord from the scroll. It's not clear why Jeremiah was banned. We're not told. Maybe it's his preaching of judgment has made him public enemy number one. But whatever the reason, Baruch went to the temple on a day of fasting, carrying the word of God written by the Holy Spirit, and he goes there to read the word in hopes that the people will receive the word. And that brings us to verses 8 through 19, receiving the word. So we had writing the word, receiving the word. It says there, And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, so now a full year has passed from the beginning of the chapter. It took him a full year to write down everything that Jeremiah told him to get the scroll ready. So this is an intensive labor task. It's probably a pretty significant scroll. They would write the scroll in columns and then sort of roll it and write it again. And often they would wrote, write on separate pieces of papyrus and then stitch them together to create the scroll. It's a lot of work. But he says here, in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court. 
at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gamaria, son of Shaphan, got to remember those three names, they're coming back, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. I'm going to skip all their names. Verse 13 and Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, I'm skipping on, to say to Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So Baruch essentially risks his life helping Jeremiah. Nevertheless, in verse 8, says he did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. It's got to be tough to go read this from Jeremiah when Jeremiah is not even allowed in the building. It's kind of like you have these laws against him, but I'm going to come and tell you what he says anyways. This is not making him popular. And quite frankly, when it's first published or read out loud, it sort of gets mixed reviews. You're not told a lot about it. He reads it to everyone he can. Apparently, two people are too busy fasting to repent. Remember, the day of fasting is because there's an army camped outside. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon has showed up. So these people aren't fasting to repent. They're basically asking God to save them. And with Jeremiah, you please be quiet. We have more important stuff to do. But we're told that one man, Micaiah, is hanging on Jeremiah's every word. And that illustrates this point. The word written by the Spirit is to be received by faith. Micaiah begins listening carefully. Verse 11 says, he heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll. He listened to Jeremiah's prophecies from beginning to end. Then there's members of the royal cabinet, the public officials, who did the same thing. And Micaiah came and told them what he'd heard. And they don't want to just a book report. They said, go get Baruch and bring him back. We need to hear uh, this and bring the scroll. And verse 14 says, Baruch took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said, sit down and read it. And so he read it to them. Like Micaiah, they're careful hearers of the word. And that's how we receive the word. We start by hearing it from beginning to end. That is why expository preaching, preaching that takes God's word the way that God gave it, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book, is so necessary. It's also why systematic reading of the, of the Bible is so valuable and why each of us needs to make a regular practice of reading or hearing the word of God all of it from beginning to end. Now, you can use a study Bible. You can use a scheduled a reading plan. There's lots of them out there. You can listen to it on CD as you commute uh, to work. You can use a Bible app. Whatever you do, however you do it, 
hear the word of God and hear all of it. And with hearing the word comes fearing the word. When Micaiah heard that God was angry with his people's sin, it says he feared the Lord greatly. Immediately he went to tell his father and other public officials, verse 16, when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's another thing to fear it. What does it mean to fear God's word? Well, to heed God's warning, to trust God's promises, to obey God's commands. To fear the word is to confess that you really are the sinner the Bible says you are. To trust that Christ really did die on the cross and rose again from the dead the way the Bible says he did. And to live your life the way the Bible says you should. It should be no surprise that Micaiah received the word of God this way. After all, verse 11 tells us he is the grandson of Shaphan. I told you these names would come back. You may not recognize that name, but it's actually an important name in the Old Testament. Shaphan was secretary, equivalent of our secretary of state, not like a secretary in your office. He's secretary of state under King Josiah. In 2 Kings 22, when they rediscover uh, the scriptures under King Josiah, it starts this great revival. That tells us the law was rediscovered in the temple in the days of Josiah, and Shaphan is the man who read it and reread it to the king. And apparently, he's also a good father and a grandfather. Great spiritual leaders don't always raise godly children. It's one of the reasons we so value what we just did in claiming those promises. But the Bible's full of stories where that didn't happen. But Shaphan did. Because here we have his family. They're like the forgotten heroes of the Bible. In Jeremiah 26, Shaphan's son Ahikam protects Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, Shaphan's son Elisah carries Jeremiah's letters to the exiles in Babylon. Here in Jeremiah 36, his son Gamaria is one of the officials who takes Jeremiah's scroll to King Jehoiakim. Shaphan's influence extends even to his grandchildren. Micaiah is his grandson. He's the one who heard Baruch read Jeremiah's prophecy and shared it with the king's officials. And his cousin, Gedaliah, another of Shaphan's grandsons, rescued Jeremiah and brought him into his home when the city of Jerusalem finally falls to the Babylonians in Jeremiah 39. We have the grandfather, three sons, two grandsons just dropped throughout the book of Jeremiah. Just more old Bible names that nobody cares about. But when you tie them all together, you see this is a family committed to the word of God through three generations. They received the word by faith. They listened to its saving message. They shared it with others and even carried copies of it to faraway places. They supported and defended faithful ministers of the word of God. They're national leaders and lovers of God's word. Therefore, Shepha, who's the family patriarch, he's a model for parents and grandparents living in a post-Christian culture. Fathers like Shaphan raise sons and daughters to go anywhere and do anything to hear and fear God's word, sharing it and preserving it for others. This is all part of what it means to receive the word by faith. 
But not everyone does that. King Jehoiakim certainly didn't do it. He's too busy rejecting the word. That's the next blank there, verses 20 through 26, rejecting the word. What happens next is the, one of the most memorable scenes in the Old Testament. One of the king's servants has fetched the scroll and has come in to the court, the king's royal court, to read it. And it says, so they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pit until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pit. Remember I said it took Jeremiah and Brooke a year to prepare the scroll of 30 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. And it's written in columns. And as he reads a few columns, the king pulls out his ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a penknife and just cuts it off and throws it in the fire. You have to imagine the scene. All the officials are there. Jehudi's reading the scroll. The king's sitting there. He's got the fire pot right there. It doesn't say anything. He reads it and just reaches over, cuts it off, throws it in the fire pot. Verse 24, yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words, so they actually heard them all, was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Delilah and Gamariah, again, son of Shaphan, urged the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Israel, and Shilamiah, the son of Abdel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Now, Jehoiakim has never been a godly king, and he didn't have the decency to wait for Jehudi to finish reading the scroll. As soon as he unrolled another section, the king methodically uses a knife to cut and then to burn God's word. We don't know why he did this. Maybe he doubted the reality of divine wrath. Maybe he didn't believe Jeremiah. Maybe he didn't think these were really from God. Perhaps he thought that burning God's word would prevent all those prophecies from coming true, many of which prophesied his own doom. If so, he failed to understand the power of the word is the power of God himself. J.I. Packer once commented on this passage that burning God's word and ignoring its warnings is like getting out of a car to destroy a bridge out sign and then driving over the bridge. It's done at one's own peril. And the shocking thing here is not so much his stupidity as maybe his audacity. It sort of comes across as the king is very casual 
about the whole thing, almost nonchalant in his rejection of God's word. Verse 24 says, Neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Instead, the king turns a deaf ear to the godly men who urged him not to do this wicked thing. Jehoiakim's act is cold, systematic, repeated, and intentionally cruel. Now, how painful it must have been for the prophet and scribe, for Jeremiah and Baruch, when they heard what happened. They had invested a year of their life in preparing this. And column by column, the scroll so painstakingly written down has been consumed in the fire. Now, Jehoiakim knows um, this is more than just a waste of papyrus. It's the word itself he's rejecting, the word of Jeremiah claiming to be the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he's not content with saying, I don't like this, I disagree with it, I'm not going to listen to it. He insists on listening to every word, and then by throwing them in the fire, he's publicly repudiating every word that he hears. His rejection of the word of God is not a mistake. It is a deliberate act of defiance of the spoken and written word of God as recorded in the scriptures. It's an awful attempt to eliminate the concrete sovereign word and will of God. How very, I mentioned Josiah earlier. How very different when the scripture was rediscovered in the days of Josiah. When Josiah heard the word from Shaphod in 2 Kings 22, he didn't tear the scroll. He tore his clothes as a sign of repentance. So let me ask, how are you receiving the word of God? This text says there are two ways to respond to the word of God. Either you receive it by faith or you reject it by disbelief. Either we hear the word or we ignore it. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, once explained it like this, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Are you more like Jehoiakim or are you more like Micaiah? Of course, you want to say Micaiah. He's the good guy in this text. But what would your Bible say if its pages could talk? If we don't love the word and live by it, I wonder if we're really any better off than Jehoiakim. Ignoring it is almost as bad as burning it. The word of God was written by the Spirit to be received by faith, not rejected at one's own peril. But thankfully, Jehoiakim doesn't get the last word because God always gets the last word. He's always at work preserving his word. This brings us to the last section of the chapter, preserving the word. Verse 27. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from, and will cut off from it man and beast? 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Verse 32, then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. You know, with so many enemies in the world, it's a little wonder there's any Bible left at all for us to read. And yet the word of God is indestructible. No sooner has the first edition of Jeremiah been reduced to ashes than the second edition goes into production. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the great French philosopher Voltaire who said he was going to have everybody, his writings were so great, he was going to have everybody forget the word of God within 50 years. 50 years later, his house was bought by the Geneva Bible Society and used as a major center for distribution of God's word. The Lord loves irony. It says here, after the king burned the scroll, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah once again and said, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll. And that's what he did. Took another scroll, you assume it took another year, gave it to Baruch, dictated the second edition of his prophecy. This is the new and improved edition because according to the end of the chapter, it says, and many similar words were added to them. When Satan tries to destroy the word of God, it comes back stronger than ever. And in this new edition, Jehoiakim makes an appearance. Again, one of the great ironies here. Among the many words Jeremiah added are some that pertain specifically to the king, pronouncing judgment on him and all his children. Verse 30, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. You burn my word, I'm throwing you out where you could just be out there and get burned by the sun. In the end, Jehoiakim has not escaped judgment. He has actually increased it. Know this, God will hold you responsible for whatever you do or fail to do with his word. God always has the last word. His word always outlasts its enemies. Satan has done his worst to prevent the production, the translation, and the proclamation of God's word, but he's completely failed. Consider all the reliable manuscripts of the Bible, which are far and away the most numerous and best attested writings we have from the ancient world, and there is nothing close. Think of many reliable translations that are available to us just in the English language. Consider the work of Bible translation going on now around the world. It won't be long, particularly for some of uh, children and teens. It may be in your lifetime that the gospel will be available in every language. And sometime after that, the book of Jeremiah 
including the very words that Jehoiakim cut from the scroll and burned in the fire, will be read by every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and people group. The word of God may be despised, but will never be destroyed. The great Puritan theologian Thomas Watson once wrote this about the Bible's staying power. He said, We may know the Scripture to be the Word of God by its miraculous preservation in all ages. He wrote this about 400 years ago, 350 years ago. The Holy Scriptures are the richest jewel that Christ has left us, and the Church of God has so kept these public records of heaven that they have not been lost. The Word of God has never lacked enemies to oppose and, if possible, to eradicate it. But God has preserved this blessed book, sacred and secure to this day. The devil and his agents have been blowing at the scripture light, but could never blow it out, a clear sign that it was lighted from heaven. There is no clearer example of this great truth than the story of King Jehoiakim and his unsuccessful attempt to extinguish the scriptures by burning the first edition of the book of Jeremiah. All of Jeremiah's prophecies were written on a scroll and taken to the king. As he sat by the fire, he used the word of God for kindling. And had the king had his way, everything Jeremiah ever prophesied would have gone up in smoke. His wanton act of destruction placed Jeremiah's writings in jeopardy. If the king had succeeded, there'd be no book of Jeremiah today. There'd be no warnings about spiritual adultery in Jeremiah 2 and 3, regularly repeated throughout the book. There'd be no signpost at the crossroads pointing out the ancient path in Jeremiah 6. No boasting in the knowledge of God, Jeremiah 9. No visiting the potter's house, Jeremiah 18 and 19. No prophecy of Christ as the righteous branch, Jeremiah 21. No seeking the peace and prosperity of the city, Jeremiah 29. No promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Nothing for Hebrews 10 to quote. And no field of dreams, Jeremiah 32. Everything Jeremiah ever prophesied would have gone up in smoke. And yet to this day, the church holds the prophecies of Jeremiah as sacred treasure, all of them. One reason the scripture is known to be the word of God is because of its miraculous preservation throughout all ages. The word abides, no thanks to any earthly power, only to the power of God. However, I worry there's a growing trend among Christians today of the problem of ignorance. And for that, I ask, is the church here in the United States truly aware of what's happening to our brothers and sisters overseas? I think and I fear that many pastors and churches are simply not aware of how bad things are. To clarify, persecution in these places doesn't look like side glances from a coworker about something you said or rude comments from your neighbor about your front yard nativity scene. Cultural opposition towards faith is very real here in the United States and even more so in Europe, but it's not persecution in the same sense that Pastor Jin Mingri and the Zion Church in Beijing know it to be, or in the way that Pastor Wang Yi and the early reign covenant church in Chengdu have experienced it. The reality is 215 million 
Christians experience high levels of persecution according to the World Watch List. And China is only number 27 on this list, which means there's 26 countries that have it worse than China right now. That figure represents one out of every 12 Christians worldwide is experiencing severe persecution. One out of 12. That'd be equivalent of taking like that whole corner of the church and just basically sending you all to prison. Except for Matt. We're going to kill him to make an example out of him. And then do horrible other things to you. Can you imagine how we'd react if we lost one out of 12? Persecution for many followers of Christ looks like abduction, rape, prison, and loss of life. It looks like gathering to worship on Sunday morning only to find out your church's cross has been removed, the Bibles have been burned, the worship spaces have been decorated with communist propaganda, and everything sacred stolen. And all these things have been happening since August of last year to this present day. And most of them have been documented. It looks like living in fear of ethnic cleansing, terrorism, and organized crime, mostly because the authorities don't protect you from that anymore. All is a penalty for living as a follower of Jesus in the presence of an antagonistic government and culture. The persecution of these Chinese Christians and countless others are experienced is very, very real. It's not just discomfort. It's not just harassment. It's not just mistreatment. It is the kind of fiery trial the Apostle Peter spoke of in 1 Peter 4 where he admonishes us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. These fiery trials endanger believers' economic stability, their safety, and sometimes their life. And their suffering doesn't go unnoticed by God. It should never go unnoticed by us. The speed and intensity with which the Chinese government has carried out their raids in recent months invokes memories of widespread persecution during the Cultural Revolution, a period in which not only Christians, but people at all levels of society were arrested and beaten. The alarming reality about this round of persecution is it's specifically targeted against religious people. Christians in house churches, Muslims in the West. There are re-education camps in the western part of China that have over 300,000 people in them. Almost all Muslims. That's like taking all of Loudoun County and putting it in a re-education camp. Many prominent house churches like Zion Church in Beijing have been raided by security forces during their Sunday worship services. Pastors, elders, church members have been taken away, all their books confiscated, their Bibles burned, and their crosses destroyed. Some have been released from prison to find out that their apartments have been taken away and all their personal possessions are gone. In addition to this high-level national persecution, traditionally targeted against pastors and church leaders, believers in China face a far more subtle and widespread threat. They may uh, have yet to face prison sentences, but there is a threat more dangerous than jail time. 
One Chinese pastor recently said at a uh, conference of uh, reformed churches in Taiwan, the biggest threats against Chinese churches right now are worldliness, spiritual immaturity, and biblical illiteracy. I thought about it and said, I'm pretty sure those are the same threats against the American church. But as I thought, thought through this of a place where Bibles are actually getting burned today, this week, it's still going on, I thought, you know, there's a whole nother problem of ignorance here. You know, as I read these reports of Bibles being burned, I have to wonder, do the authorities really believe that's going to be effective? Do they really think these Bibles won't be replaced? That believers aren't feverishly memorizing the scriptures as the persecuted church has done for centuries. <coughs> I remember when I was in high school, I went to a large church in Boston and they had a big missions conference. In many ways, they kind of invented the idea. And they had a guy come from part in Asia and he was introduced to us as Peter. Because for his church, he had memorized First and Second Peter. So whenever they needed First or Second Peter, they hauled him up front. He was Peter. And there was a John and a Luke and a Matthew. And they had memorized those books. They became those books. I'll never forget it. I'll never remember his name, but I'll never forget that he was Peter. I thought that was so Amazing. Are they going to be able to suppress in the age of technology all the Bible apps on people's smartphones? Far more widespread in China than here in America. When the Zion Church lost its ability to conduct corporate worship, they went to small group worship in houses and sent out the sermon versus various messenger apps. When the Chinese government monitored and blocked WeChat, which is the largest messaging app in the world, in order to hear and read uh, hear the sermon and read the Bible, the people in church went to the apps Line, Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, Wire, and Zero. In order to keep ahead of the government, I'm told the average church in Beijing uses seven to ten different messaging apps to communicate. And basically, an app is assigned a day of the week. So on Tuesday, you use this app so they can try to stay ahead of the government. Of course, other than technology, none of this is new. As I said at the beginning, the history of the church is filled with accounts of Bibles being burned. And yet, there's one dramatic difference between trying to get rid of the written word and taking on the living word, who is Christ Jesus himself. I mean, that's the gospel story, the word incarnate at Christmas. The word crucified on Good Friday, the living word brought to life never to die again on Easter Sunday. That's why the book of Hebrews begins by telling us long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's why every one of my closing prayers and every one of my sermons, including this one, those closing prayers begin our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. I don't say that by accident. 
That's intentional. They can take away our Bibles and burn them. They can take away the word of God written. But they can never take away the word of God living. Because in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Think about that. Better yet, pray about that. Take a moment to do that. And then I will close with those familiar lines. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are people who, when it comes to your word, know too little, not too much. We would rather spend time with social media than spiritual truth. We would rather listen to our headphones than listen to the head of the church. Lord, please forgive us. Make us like those who long for your word. Make it a light to our eyes and a delight to our souls. Lord, give us this greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, and to believe it comes from your hand. And forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own insecurities and work in each of us this year as we continue to live with the prophet Jeremiah as we see what he sees and hears what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through those things, draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.